Hey, this is Daryl. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for listening. We have a great episode for you today. I know I always say that, but I really always believe it. We have a great episode. It's myself talking to George Qureshi, former editor of The Athletic Soccer. Uh, We're talking about chapter three of David Goldblatt's book, The Age of Football. The chapter focused on South American soccer in the 21st century. You don't need to have read the book to enjoy the conversation. Before we get to that, I'd like to remind you about Football with Grant Wall, the new podcast from Grant Wall, which I I hope you know by now. Taylor and I have been involved with it behind the scenes. We're really excited about it. The quality of guest that Grant is getting on the show is incredible. The questions he asks are great. On Wednesday, he published a bonus episode interviewing Roberto Martinez, former Everton manager, current Belgium manager. Here's a quick 90-second excerpt from that show in which Grant asks Roberto Martinez about the U.S. men's national team. Take a listen. Roberto, you're a well-known figure in the United States. We are co-hosting a World Cup here in 2026. I would suspect that the job coaching the U.S. men's national team from 2023 to 2026 would be a coveted job would you have any interest in that job in 2023? Oh, in, in football, um, anything that it goes further than a month, I, I can't give you <laughs> ever an answer. Uh, if I learned something in football is that you can't plan uh, for the future because oh, you're underachieved or you, you could set the targets to, too high. And what I can say is that I always felt that um, USA, one day they'll, they'll hit it in a way that, they, they, they will win something big. Um, I work with with a, with a couple of American players, but especially uh, Tim Howard. For me, that incredible professionalism to almost take uh, pushing things to the limit. And the coaching is growing all the time in, 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 in the MLS, uh, the influence of, of other uh, ways of thinking. And the big numbers is just soccer is growing all the time. And there will be a moment that the the generation will allow you to have a very, very competitive team to do something special in a World Cup. So um, it's, it's, it's something that I've always been curious about and I always check. But uh, believe me, I don't know what's going to happen in six months down the line. So I can't really answer that question. <laughs> So there you go. That's Football with Grant Wall. Please go and find it in iTunes, in Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And please subscribe, rate and review. Two more quick messages before we get into my conversation with George Qureshi. One, my conversation with George Qureshi does feature some talk about politics. Just, you know, I want you to be forewarned. If talk about politics scares you, I don't know book up, maybe toughen up. Um, But if you really, really don't want to hear any politics, maybe this isn't the show for you. So just so you're forewarned. Two, this show is sponsored by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. LLS is hosting a trailblazing event, um, Big Virtual Climb, sponsored by Abvi. It's all to support their investment in groundbreaking research to advance blood cancer cures and first-in-class patient education and services, including financial support and clinical trial navigation. And if you've been following along, you'll know that clinical trials and clinical trial navigation is a thing that's very important to me. 
The message is step up to take cancer down by climbing 61 floors or 1,762 steps. You can do this inside or outside, on stairs, on the road or on your treadmill. Climb whichever way you like. But whatever you do, join LLS for the opening ceremony and then take on your climb with their heart pumping playlist. Join them June 13th from coast to coast as LLS comes together to climb, conquer and cure. Register at lls.org slash big climb. The link will be in the show notes. Okay, here's the TSS music and then my conversation with George Qureshi. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by the former editor of the Athletic Soccer page. His name is George Qureshi. Hello, George. Daryl, you stood me up last week. I just wasn't sure what to do with myself and so I went and quit my job. And, and uh, <laughs> But we're back. We're back. You, you, you came around. I'm, I'm so glad. It's good to hear from you, buddy. It's good to hear your voice. So before we talk about From the Left Wing, um, Chapter 3 of David Goldblatt's The Age of Football, all about soccer in South America in the 21st century, we've got to talk about the news because I think it took most people by surprise, right? That you are no longer the editor of the, I always always struggled with how to phrase it, the soccer section of The Athletic. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, Yeah, hopefully it was a surprise, um, I guess. Uh, I've been working on a a business idea with a friend for some time now and we felt like the time was right. we are we are launching a company. Um, we are live. It's it's at heyartifact.com is the URL. Uh, and um, yeah, I, I'll try to keep this brief. But basically, we make we, no, pitch we, away, pitch yeah, away. <laughs> we basically connect regular like so. Essentially, like the idea is that um, podcasts are such a great way to share ideas and tell stories and capture memories. Um, but it's not really accessible to regular people. So we, we connect regular people with professional interviewers to help, you know, help schedule and conduct interviews, um, and ask the right questions so that they can explore the relationships and the stories and the memories that are important to them. If that makes sense. Absolutely. The URL again is, uh, heyartifact.com. So yeah, um, I've been, I, it's funny. I, we have a former Howler subscriber who has, has, has purchased one. Um, and I won't say any more than that, but it's, it's so exciting. Uh, and so I'm, I'm getting to interview people who are happy to talk to me and that's a, that's a nice change. Um, <laughs> and just like, you know, doing this again, like after Howler, I learned so much, um, and we're doing it quite differently than, than the way we did Howler. But, um, but yeah, I get to, I get to try to make something new again, which is a real, a real exciting challenge. All right, I feel like I gave you a lot of room to pitch and to plug. And in return, I would love to ask you, I understand that the, the reason for leaving The Athletic is because you were all in on Artifact. But at the same time, how could you leave The Athletic when you <laughs> built what I'm going to say is the, the biggest collection of full-time soccer writers ever assembled in American soccer? Is that that's accurate, right? Yeah. And it was also just the best group of people that I've probably ever worked with, um, in my life. And that was extremely, extremely hard in that respect. Um, they, uh, you know, there were some really nice things on Twitter, but there, the, there was a really like meaningful thing that they gave me, which was a a Google doc where they each wrote me a note and, um, man, (laughs) I still haven't thanked them. I just need to sit down and write some thank you notes. But, um, 
it was so hard to walk away from that. Uh, but like at the same time, Daryl, like, you know, you know, Brooks and Alex, the editors and you know, the writers, and that yeah. is a team that, um, you know, just in the week since I've been gone in the, in the four days, the four working days since I've been gone, they've been publishing some amazing stuff and there. It's just like, I, it was like, I, you know, it, 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 it's honestly, that's the biggest testament to, I think that team that, that like I can, I can just go and things carry on. Like, like, like I'm, you know, like I was yeah. never there or like, I, like I, like I, you know, uh, and this happened when I took three months off to when my daughter was born and it was the same thing. And it's honestly, it's such a nice, it's, it's a, it's a real affirmation of like what we built. I, I would say. I, I do feel like one of the sort of gifts that you've given to me and Taylor is that you always included us with all, like, you know, introduced us to all those athletic soccer writers. So now we're like, obviously very friendly with pretty much all those writers that um, that work for you. Um, so it's like expanded our soccer network massively. So yeah, I'm always yeah. really grateful that you sort of, you know, invited us to uh, the media games and the and the parties and all that stuff. Yeah, that's something I've sort of learned about myself as I've become an adult, which is that I like connecting people. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that's part of the reason I like being an editor as opposed to a writer. I like the social aspect of it. Um, <laughs> I guess I'm not an editor anymore, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, it's, uh, that, that's a real, you know, it, it really brings me a lot of joy to like say, Hey, here's, here's Daryl and Taylor and you sort of know them, but now you really know them. And <laughs> now there are connections that, that like extend way beyond me, which is, which is great. But was there, was there any element of sort of, all right, I've done this for, I want to say two years more or less, right? Yeah, um, just over two, yeah. I've done this for two years and maybe it's like too much soccer, too much soccer 24-7. Is that part of the decision to, to move on? I guess are you just been, one of those, are you yeah. one of those itchy feet people who's always moving on? I, I definitely need, I need variation in what I'm doing. Um, when I was working in books, that was a big problem for me. Cause you know, you work on books and, and you can spend, you know, eight months, a year on, on working on a book and I just would get a little bit itchy. Right. Like, like you mm -hmm. said, um, and, but, but no, 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 I really, I, I loved what I was doing with the athletic that it was not at all. Like I'm sick of this. I will say that like after eight years working in soccer full time, um, I'm excited to, to experience soccer again as like, you know, with it not being you know, my, my day job. Um, I, I think that I was getting a little bit like, yeah, you know, it's soccer, whatever. Um, yeah. and yeah, I just needed a refresh. I don't know if you feel the same way ever. I don't cause I, f I, I did feel that when I was only writing, you know, when I was sort of working for, uh, the offside was yeah. my and main now, job. Now when you talk about it, you're yeah, I feel like it's a little less pressure to talk about it. Just especially because when we talk like this interview, you know, I'll, add some music um, and it'll be just put out into the world. It, and I think it happens nice and quickly. Yeah, and it happens true. so quickly that it, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't, I don't feel the same pressure as when you have to write something. Yeah. Interesting. Well, we'll see. Yeah. I'll, I'll uh, yeah, I, I'm excited about, I'm excited just to, for soccer to come back and me to just I, for to sit down and watch it and not have to worry about <laughs> what does this mean? <laughs> you're, yeah. You're just yeah. in time to not have to edit anything about that Orlando tournament for Major oh League Soccer, God. right? It's yeah. a pretty good time. That's true. That's, that's, <laughs> that's been Paul and Sam and a few other writers. That's been, that's been the fixation for the last, uh, for the last month. I know Don Garber noticed. Um, shall we, <laughs> shall we get to today's business, George? It is, um, like I mentioned, chapter three, um, of the art of football from the left wing, all about South American soccer. First question. I've shared this document with you, right? So you know what the first question is. What is the theme of this chapter? I think this chapter had a, for me, a very clear theme. It was like David, David was going to take us through every major South American country and, and show us how the, um, 
how the politicians made use of soccer or how soccer crept into um, the politics of the last 20 years. Um, yeah. And how, you know, and how the left, the left was ascendant for, for uh, maybe you can broadly say the last two decades um, in Latin America um, and had, had not really been all that interested in using soccer in that way. But, but suddenly uh, around the turn of the century in, you know, give or take in different countries found soccer to be a useful tool or, or just had a genuine interest and, and started incorporating it in, in the case of like someone like Evo Morales, right? Yeah. He struck me as so Evo Morales, for people who don't know, he was the president of Bolivia. Um, he struck me as one of those people who was a genuine soccer fan before politics came into it right? yeah exactly from, from the stories it's like he was what founding soccer teams and playing soccer and coaching um before he even had any um thoughts of being a politician so i'm always really encouraged when someone's someone's love for soccer is is a real thing as opposed to um a photo op you know what i'm saying <laughs> uh yeah yeah i, I agree um <laughs> so so anyway we, we should note right off the bat that um two two major things have changed really since uh david published the book one is evo morales was overthrown in a coup in bolivia There's there's now a right-wing government that has taken over. Um, and the other is that uh, in Venezuela, the U.S. Um, has been sort of trying to foment uh, a similar outcome um, against uh, uh, the government there. So, so is, those, is it Maduro still in power? He was like Chavez's successor? He's still in power. Um, yeah. yeah. Still doing some hyperinflation? Just print more money? <laughs> that will solve it? I think that seems yeah, to be yeah, from yeah. Things, things are rough. But, um, but yeah, those are, those are two updates. So uh, let's continue. All right. So can, can we take a lesson in general from this chapter about how left-leaning politics really throughout the entire confederation of ten, essentially 10 nations, how do left-leaning politics affect soccer? Like, is there one consistent theme about what happens to soccer when left-leaning governments get involved? That's interesting. I don't know. Do you have something in mind? Because I, I, I kind of like, I'm, I'm a little surprised by that question. I want to, I want to hear what you have to say. It, well, it seemed to me that it, it was different each time, right? Because there were different levels of, for example, state intervention. Um, like the example I can think of is that in Argentina, there was the the big big difference was that the government got involved in the broadcast of the broadcast of football, right, and took it away from um, I forgot that the name was the big the big media rights companies like Clarin or Clario. Um, yeah, the, yeah, Clarine, right? Something Clarine, like that. Yeah, yeah, the government mm -hmm. took it away from Clarine and bought the TV rights themselves and made it free to air on television, but then also inserted some sort of governmental propaganda into the broadcast, which I thought was really fascinating. And then in Bolivia, for example, it seemed like uh, Morales said a couple of things about how like state intervention might be good for improving Bolivian soccer, but as far as I can tell, apart from using soccer as you know a political backdrop and photo ops and a theme he didn't actually do anything to change soccer in bolivia like it's almost like he thought i i don't want to mess with this because th there's not much chance of success at least that was my that was my read on it based on the very brief um the, the the brief bits of reading that I did. Yeah, it's funny. He's he seemed to be most serious about the 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 uh, the campaign to prevent FIFA from limiting the altitude at which games can be played, which yes. was kind of great. Uh, <laughs> can I ask you about that? Did you even know about that? Yeah, I had heard about that. That was um, apps, that was totally news to me. That yeah. um, FIFA under Sepp Blatter, right in the what uh, mid to early two thousands, um, had suggested that 
they put a total ban on any games above 2,500 metres elevation. And it seemed like Morales led the opposition to that and uh, got a few other, what you'd call them like Andes nations, I think, um, on side, a lot of nations that play elevation. What I read in the chapter is that he went to Comnibol and managed to like almost squeeze a statement out of them yeah. <laughs> supporting the campaign yeah. and essentially defeated Blatter and what played a game at 6,000 meters to prove a point. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of uh, great. It's kind of great. Um, and, yeah, and he, and and he was playing for pro teams. <laughs> like he had pro contracts, you know, yeah. which was part, you know, mostly stunt, I think. But it just yes. speaks to his genuine love of the game. And Yeah, it wasn't Gaddafi yeah. offspring-ish. Right? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, no. So so to your original question, I think that it's different in every country because the... the uh, the sort of the the historical relationship of soccer to the, the people is a little different. Like in Venezuela, it's, it was not the most popular game, right? Baseball was, was more popular, probably still yeah. is more popular. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the relationships between sort of the, uh, the settler descendants of the settlers and, and the, the indigenous peoples is, is a little different. And, and, you know, and the African, um, you know, the Afro, uh, Latin American populations, like for instance in Ecuador, it's a big it's a big story. Um, it's a little different in each of those cases. So so it just the soccer the game of soccer takes on a little bit of a different um, look or or role in each of these countries. And I thought that was really fascinating. The other thing I'd like to talk about that I actually forgot to include in the notes, so this might be a surprise to you. I apologize um, in advance. Is there are a lot of examples of protests throughout the chapter? Right, protests. Daryl, Daryl against... you shared your notes with me five minutes before we started recording. So even even if it's in the notes, it's a surprise to me. So, um... <laughs> but yes, car- carry on, That's carry fair. on. Um, there are a lot of examples of um, soccer players um, essentially protesting to try and get what they want. Right, like there's Morales at the government level protesting against FIFA, um, but there are like, all these examples of. Um, for example, uh, I saw there was a thing where uh, Peruvian players to protest, um, I think, like the, the way that Peruvian soccer was run, uh, I read that 500 players sent a letter to the FA saying that they would not consider playing for the national team. Yeah, I, I just was... thought, of how, I thought of how deep the 500-player <laughs> national <laughs> national player pool is. Like, even Greg Berhalter doesn't have a spreadsheet with 500 names on it, right? I, so I that love really that. would leave them yeah. with no one. No, that's like the ultimate posturing. It's like, hey... Just so you know, I'm not yeah. available for the national team. Uh, so don't even come asking me because I, I like I am out of out of principle. I am not playing for the national. So so I would like to everyone fiftieth you know choice left back. Exactly, no. exactly. Uh, <laughs> that was that was really great. I mean, you know, the idea though that, that the players have a lot of power is, I think, you know, it's something that that European players in the top leagues have 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 understood and have realized. Um, uh, and, and I think, you know, if it's trickling down into, into Latin America where, you know, they're just like, you know, the forces are, are stacked against them in, in, in a lot more ways. Um, I think that's, that's really interesting. Uh, you know, ultimately they are the workforce. And so if they band together and do something, uh, they can make some changes. But, you know, as we've seen, like, you know, there are, there are, um, you know, there are oligarchs, there are, you know, the essentially like mob-like uh, fan groups like there are a lot of forces that are going to prevent them from from getting their way and i think that's what we see them sort of protesting right but ultimately if they refuse to play it's it's just not happening right it's just not happening right right um, so even so I, I can't remember wh- i can't remember now which nation it was um but there was um a, a team that was having pro- televised games and they would protest before the games so the government would just not show anything until the kickoff. And then the next week, the teams learned to kick off 
and then protest immediately after. I think that was in Venezuela. Yeah, that, that, was, yes. that was interesting. That was that really interesting. That, was that probably during the period of, um, it was either during the period of hyperinflation or maybe during the period of like uh, Chavez, uh, I would say, um, expanding his power. Uh, I believe it was after Chavez. I think it was okay. I, that particular episode was, I think, during Maduro's like sort of early, early, um, early time. Uh, but but sense. but I don't remember exactly. But but yeah, um, yeah, that was an interesting. You know, I guess I guess though for me, like one of the major themes, if we're talking about themes still of the chapter, is the way that. Um, you know, soccer is really representative of, of a lot of the, the ills of, of, of society. And, and this, these are societies that have a lot of problems. Um, and so even, even if you get, even if you sort of are able to harness soccer, um, there are real limitations. I think Argentina is another good example of this where, you know, people would change things about the game, but if they, if they don't also change, you know, the, the, the legal structures, if they don't change the, the, the policing, if they don't make it possible to like actually reform it as a business, as an entertainment, um, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Can we talk about the, uh, the Barras Bravas? Um, in argentina it was a big shock to me to see how how large and organized the barras were i honestly thought these were just the rowdy fans with a lot of flags um that add a lot of color and excitement to the games what i learned is that they're essentially um very very organized enterprises with the people at the top wielding an awful lot of influence and taking in an awful lot of money people just below them you know taking in some money and then essentially a bunch of soldiers in the organization so it's almost like a mafia structure is uh, pretty much how um david goldblatt describes it right and the, yeah, this the big blew example my mind. i saw the big yeah. example i saw was that boca's biggest uh barra um takes in around a hundred thousand dollars per game in yeah. ticket resales in like being in control of the parking in taking cuts from uh, concessions and and things like that i had no idea that you could essentially operate a criminal enterprise as a fan group I feel like there's a lot of MLS teams are missing out. <laughs> Actually, I, yeah. I wrote down the same the same little factoid: hundred thousand dollars is crazy. And and then also yes. that they can you know not not this not La Dose, right Boca's Boca's um, group, but necessarily. But but he said the most powerful groups can command thirty percent of transfer fees and twenty percent of player wages, which is also yeah. How can you imagine how how does that work? Like, does that just mean that when a player is sold, that there's just automatically the club has to hand over that percentage to the to the guys at the top? I think it's, the, I mean, it's essentially virus. a shakedown, right? It's like, it's like, you know, Hey, um, and, and I think that players also, um, you know, there, there are stories about players, families being kidnapped, um, there, you know, and, and so there's like a very, there's, a, you know, there's a very direct, um, sort of menacing relationship here. Um, and I think, I think part of, part of the reason that we see a lot of Argent, Argentines coming and playing in the United States is like, the sense I get is that they, they just appreciate that it's a, just there's just a bit more um you know <laughs> safety i guess uh yeah. and and a little less like you know lethal fanaticism um so yeah it's it's super interesting um you know i would point people toward there's a really really great story about this um a friend of mine amos barshad wrote a piece um for the fader uh, it was supposed to be, I think, for Grantland, but but Grantland like fell apart while he was reporting this. And it's called "Why Are the Soccer Hooligans of Argentina Killing Each Other?" It's about um, it's about the uh, these rival gangs, uh, sorry, rival bravas, uh, yeah, um, uh, Barra bravas uh, yeah. for Newell's Old Boys, and it's essentially these are um, these are drug you know drug running fronts, um, 
really more so than like fan groups and and there's just like this crazy war going on in in rosario and he went down there and wrote this amazing piece about it so um uh maybe i don't know daryl can you put like links in the show notes i would love to send yeah. people to this story because it's so good i can put it in there if you send it to me i'll do that all right it's a deal <laughs> um yeah what the the other big quote i saw um i think uh david quotes two different people um as saying that the the top guys in the borough is it, is it am i pronouncing it without the s is that how i should be pronouncing it um the top top guys couldn't name the starting 11 of the team <laughs> right right because they're not in it for the soccer at all yeah. at that point yeah. they're in it because this is like their little uh their little criminal enterprise essentially yeah i think they're technically called bara bravas but um and then if you shorten it and get rid of bravas you would say a bara or bara the bara oh right? but i think so. there's also a like a plural to it sort of like attorneys general i think that's what's oh, going oh. on in the book las paras bravas yeah, yeah sure could be yeah that makes sense i'm sure someone will correct one of <laughs> one or both of us on that yeah all right <laughs> hey this is daryl jumping in to let you know that today's show is sponsored by sunday scaries specially formulated cbd gummies with vitamins d3 and b12 they're super consumable and easy to take on the go they come in a nice little tub it occurs to me that this is not our first Sunday Scaries ad. You've heard us promote them before, and we've mentioned CBD many, many times. But we maybe haven't explained what it is. CBD is short for cannabidiol, a chemical compound found in the cannabid sativa plant, also known as marijuana, but it is very specifically not THC, which is the psychoactive part of marijuana. So let's be really clear, CBD does not get you high, it just promotes a feeling of calm, of wellness. And the Sunday Scaries gummies are exactly what you're picturing, a little tub of little tiny bears. Each of those little guys infused with CBD. So if you'd like to give Sunday Scaries a try, but you'd like to get 25% off your first order, you can get 25% off your first order with the code SOCCER at sundayscaries.com. That's 25% off your first order at sundayscaries.com. Enter code SOCCER where it asks for a coupon on the checkout page. Find out what product might be best for you. Go to sundayscaries.com and use the code SOCCER. Thank you to Sunday Scaries for sponsoring the Total Soccer Show. Let's get back to George Qureshi. Um, so yeah, let's, let's not focus on the negative. Um, maybe let's focus on... The Chilean uh, Women's National Team's Players' Union merger with the Men's Union, which seemed to have some really positive effects. I think, from what I understand, the f soon after that merger, the, uh, the Chile Chilean Federation agreed to host the Copa America, I think it's the Copa America Femenina, um, it's called. And then we saw Chile in the 2019 Women's World Cup. We all remember that Chile has that great goalkeeper, Endler, right? So there's um, a fam famous Chilean player. And it made me wonder, like, is that the model that, for example, U.S. soccer might follow, that you really can merge unions and and improve your situation? I mean, I, to me, that that makes a lot of sense. Um, but, uh, but you know, I think w one thing that's interesting to me about South America, if, if I can just sort of digress from that question yeah, what very briefly, is that, you know... Are you going to not answer it at all, or are you just going <laughs> to digress? We'll come back. Um, <laughs> but David describes, you know, kind of a, you know, I think he uses the, the phrase toxic masculinity at some point. Um, yes. You know, uh, there are smoke. young men there, yeah, who who feel pretty disaffected. There aren't a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of, um, 
you know, the society is highly stratified and the wealth is really concentrated at the top. Um, and yet, uh, we have a couple examples of, of women who have become leaders of their countries in Chile and Brazil. Um, it's really interesting to me. And, and, you know, so Michelle ba- Bachelet, I, I guess is, is how you pronounce it. Um, was the president in, in Chile a couple times. Uh, and you know, he writes about her friendship with Marcelo Bielsa. Um, and, and so, you know, like to me, that is a very interesting, um, tension between like these societies we think of as maybe really male dominated and, and chauvinist in, in certain ways. Um, uh, and yet, um, you know, compare it to our own and, and, you know, we, we haven't, you know, um, I guess we, <laughs> you guys in the UK have done so, but like, you know, she was kind of a, <laughs> uh, yeah, not anyway. my favorite, not my favorite <laughs> prime minister. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we haven't done that here. Um, yeah. and so I don't know, I just, that strikes me, um, as, as really interesting. It's, I, I'm interested as well in the way that it's the fortunes of national teams seem to mirror the, uh, the positive political outcomes. If, if you follow me, like it seemed that the, the Bielsa era and the San Paoli era, as I understand it, in Chile, when Chile went to the 2010 and 2014 World Cup and did did really really well, um, seemed to mirror. Um, I'm sorry, I've forgotten her name. When the the, the female leader was um, in charge, and I think there was like a swing to the right, and then fortunes dip uh, yeah, for the Chilean yeah, yeah, national but, team, and they don't but, qualify for the World Cup. Yeah, but remember, Argentina won the World Cup in '78 when the dictatorship was was uh pretty powerful um yeah, yeah but if you host a tournament and heavily influence <laughs> it it's that that's maybe a different story right sure oh, but also you know brazil's i think david makes a case that that brazil's quest to and then hosting of the 2014 world cup sort of um had a direct effect on the decline of 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 lula's project and like the you know um yeah you know he he he's in Lula prison and his right successes now, so. right yeah 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 Dilma Rousseff. so so um yeah, I, I, one, one thing I want to ask David about, he, he seemed to be very down on, on Lula, which surprised me a little bit. Um, I think it's pretty pretty well understood now that um, it was a very corrupt judge, uh, Sergio Moro, who who put Lula in prison. Um, mm-hmm. And and it seems a bit like a stitch up. And so uh, I, I kind of want to ask David about that. But otherwise, um, you know, I guess just getting back to your point, um, I, I, had not, I had not seen... I guess I hadn't really considered the case that the, the World Cup, because it was such a boondoggle and, you know, so much money went to building these stupid stadiums yeah. and, you know, so many dollars, people, yeah, so many people were oppressed. I mean, it's so interesting that that could have that effect, you know, that it can reverberate into the politics and have such a massive, massive effect. Yeah, see, from what I understood, there's a lot, obviously a lot of construction projects that come with hosting a World Cup and a lot of the... Um, either actual or perceived corruption was between uh, the construction companies and politicians, right? And there's a lot. It's it's not rare for a lot of money to go missing or be <laughs> be overpriced, right, right. Uh, so that people can can take a bit of a skim in massive construction projects, right? Um, and it, it, this got me thinking. This is a question I really want to ask you. I I'm, I'm pretty sure we've had this conversation before that neither of us think that uh, building stadiums with public money is a good idea um, because it tends to just, it's just money that disappears from communities. Um, And it looks to me like any time there's a big tournament, like a World Cup, and you have to build a load of stadiums, that they, you end up not needing those stadiums for the long term, right? So a lot, a lot of money is spent really for just a month long spectacle. 
and Brazil to me is a great example of that, right? A lot of those 2014 stadiums are now underused or not used at all. Um, yeah, I mean, so, look, at the Mar- look at the Maracanã, right? I mean, he met, yeah. <laughs> like nobody wanted to pay to to keep it <laughs> to keep you know for the upkeep. It, really tragic because um, it's such a such an important symbol of football in in Brazil. But yeah, it's just totally. So, that's a recurring problem, right? There's massive money spent on construction just for a tournament. And I, I wanted to propose the idea that maybe we should start awarding uh, World Cups and other tournaments based on existing infrastructure. Like You have to bid for it with what you've got because the, the money that is spent on stadiums isn't really invested in football. Like You can say it is, but no one benefits from an en- empty stadium sitting there demanding either upkeep money or falling into ruin. Right. So do you think there's a case for saying you have to like bid with what you've got? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was uh, there's that there's there, we talked about we talked about the same thing in the Africa chapter uh, with South Africa. Um, yeah. When I went to Greece in 2012, uh, <laughs> like the, the, the Olympic complex that they had built was just, you know, right pretty much not in use except for the soccer stadium from what i could tell so so yeah i mean i think there's a pretty 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 good track record now of uh of these these projects sort of you know serving their purpose as like a television set right and then and then basically becoming useless so are we missing something like why isn't it as obvious to say fifa or to host nations as it is to the two of us uh I don't think it's not obvious to them. It's just like this is this is a part of like this is an this is like one um example of the problem that sort of is plaguing South American soccer as a whole and like soccer in a lot of uh what we I guess we call the developing world where you know the people who make the decisions are <laughs> are not really are not you know they they have no democratic legitimacy they you know they're not serving the interests of the public they are they're there to get I mean uh look at look at the Brazilian example um uh, part of the reason that, uh, that, that became so expensive is because they were giving these sweetheart contracts to, to contractors and like the money was just disappearing. I mean, it wasn't disappearing. It was going into their bank accounts. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the head of the CBF, uh, was, was stuck in, I want to say Fort Lauderdale or Miami and couldn't, couldn't leave because he, if he went back to Brazil, he was going to be arrested. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> like, yeah, this is not, this is not an accident. It's not like, Oh, oops. You know, this is by design. This is like the way that you get public money into private bank accounts. Oh, so maybe FIFA could think that let's stop doing that. Daryl. Uh, uh, I forgot that you are the owner of FIFA.WTF. Right? Daryl, I own, I own FIFA.WTF and, uh, you know, I, it, it's a really good investment. I think there, this is not, um, it's, it's going to make sense to generations, you know, uh, ahead from us. So, so yeah, I don't think this is uh, going to go away anytime soon, but yeah. I what, mean, if, look, uh, what if FIFA wanted to buy FIFA.WTF? from you they haven't they definitely have enough money to buy that from me I the, will there, try, there's an yeah. amount of money that would persuade you to part oh, with it yeah absolutely and fifa definitely has it so you know hit, hit me up <laughs> we you know we were at howler we did the story of the guy who the guy who uh uh developed uh fifa.com and sold it to fifa twice he basically twice? he wanted yeah he wanted like, i'm not going to spoil it but but he won it back when when um when ISI went, went bankrupt. Um, mm. and so, yeah, it was pretty great. So anyway, yeah, they, they, they can definitely afford it. Let's, uh, I don't know. Like this, that part to me was not that surprising because it's like ugh, such a, such a depressing, you know, um, regular story, you know? And you assume this keeps continuing. 
Well, yeah, it definitely keeps continuing. It's like, it's going to continue for, you know, until like, until we basically decide that, you know, I mean, this is why the Argentina thing is so interesting, right? Like deciding that, that soccer is a public good and that allowing people to see it. Cause you know, David oh, mentioned, yeah. yeah, David mentions that, that, you know, they were basically people were watching, um, you know, cameras turned in at the crowd. They were so desperate to, to, to experience this, that they would watch the game with the camera turned in at the crowd, or they would watch, um, you know, like a, uh, an, like a, an animated, um, rendition of a goal, yes. uh, or, or read the description. And so, and so, you know, if you, if you consider soccer a public good and say, Hey, you know what, this is like the national pastime. This is like part of our oxygen. Um, you know, we're going to make it available for everybody. That's a really interesting interesting project um it sort of it, it aligns with the way i think that people on the left and this is really a, a chapter about the left um in some cases breaking through in some cases failing in some cases you know in all cases like attempting to like write the uh some historical wrongs that i think were that have really scarred latin america um you know if you think of it that way you know it extends to right i mean this is something that people like me have been you know when i was you know um volunteering for Bernie Sanders was saying like, you know, Hey, healthcare maybe shouldn't be for profit. Um, you, you, you know, you could, you could decommodify it. And, and, and so, but like to, to extend that to soccer is a really, I just love it. Uh, it's, mm. it, it, it's not, I'm going to make, I'm going to make a comparison that I think isn't that crazy. If you, after you think about it, but it's not that different from how we think about NCAA football. I mean, think about the massive subsidies that state schools like, you know, University of Alabama get, um, University of Florida. Uh, we just don't, we don't talk about it that way. Like my favorite Twitter bios that I, that I see are people who are like, I'm a libertarian. And then I'm also like a Bama fan. And I'm like, well, Hey, you realize that's a government program, right? But anyway, like, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> well, since you mentioned Bernie Sanders, um, I, I think it is worth talking about Venezuela, uh, because I mean, I don't think the two are linked. But you did you did often see the um, always the criticism of anyone who wants to introduce any um, democratic social um, like democratic socialism into the United States. The response on Twitter from pe- usually people wearing sunglasses, weirdly, in their Twitter photo, <laughs> <laughs> is uh, look at what happened in Venezuela. Right. So for me, at least, reading this chapter, I know that this book is about soccer, but it made me like you know really focus up and think about what happened in Venezuela. Right. Which is essentially. The very brief version is Chavez takes power. He uh, na- tries to nationalize the oil industry and invests that money um, into the public good, right? But the situation right now is that we've ended up with hyperinflation in Venezuela and uh, people having to leave and it being a really, really uh, like terrible situation in Venezuela right now, right? So I, I was in- interested to hear because, you know, you don't hide your politics, right? I, I always like to know what you say to people um, those people with the sunglasses in their Twitter profiles who uh, link Bernie Sanders to what happened in Venezuela. <laughs> I, I, I enjoy that one because it's like, yeah, th- th- what you hear is like, oh, you want the U.S. to become Venezuela. And, and I think, um, I mean, no, like clearly, clearly the goal is not to create like a, a state that's suffering from hyperinflation and like a lack of medical supplies and, and just like real, real deprivation that we see in Venezuela right now. It's such a sad story. And and so I think that, you know, the, the easy, the easy story to tell is that like, Oh yes, Chavez took power. Maduro took over from him. And, and, and of course that impoverished this country. That's not, not really the story. I mean, Chavez, Chavez and Maduro, first of all, you have to separate them. Right. And, yeah. and, and Chavez really did a lot to, to try to help, um, you know, poor, poor and working class people. Um, 
you know, there was a time I remember when I was living in New York City and there was a big story. It was, you know, Venezuela was sending heating oil to to people in Boston. And and that was so striking to me. And it was like, wow, that, that this was a real commitment to like, you know, international solidarity, just helping helping poor people where, wherever the need is. Um, you know, the U.S. has a pretty pretty just a pretty deep record of going into um you know latin america and 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 really opposing left left-wing governments mm-hmm. um making it very difficult so right now part of the reason we don't talk about this that much in the in the media but part of the reason you know, there are a lot of reasons for why venezuela is suffering right now uh, and maduro certainly has done some very very bad things um but you know part of the reason is also is that like there's a ton of money that the U S has frozen and they can't access. And so, and so this is, this is economic warfare that we're, that we're exacting upon Venezuela. And so, you know, look, when I, when someone says, um, uh, you know, you want, you want the U S to become Venezuela, I say, Hey, first of all, no, like think Denmark, let's, let's try Let's try that. First of all, second of all, um, a successful social democracy. Yeah. Second of all, I think part, part of the reason that Chavez came to power and was able to, to do so much like, it had so much to do and it was able to, to put so many reforms in place is because it was such a stratified society. You know, the wealthy had, had sort of extracted so much wealth and, and privatized so much that, um, you know, it just created this society where people just didn't feel like they were a part of it. They didn't have anything to look forward to. And so when I look at where the U S is headed and sorry, I know this is getting way out of soccer territory, but when I look at where the U S is headed, where, you know, the inequality is staggering. Um, you know, people, people are just suffering. Like there's just, it's hard to look and say, Oh, there's a future here for, for everyone. Um, it's just the public sector has just been hollowed out to such an extent. I say, actually, I think that really Bernie's project is to prevent, um, you know, the U S from, from, from this, path that we seem to be on to 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 become venezuela by by just impoverishing the majority of the citizens essentially yeah yeah so so anyway i mean i think it's a you know i obviously think it's it's a pretty facile and and you know irresponsible uh thing to say that you know <laughs> like you want to you want to help everyone get health care and, and therefore like we want to we want to turn the country into like what venezuela is suffering right now yeah so take that sunglasses twitter um, one of the one weird thing that came out of this is my uh, discovery that Chavez had a TV show called um, Allo Presidente um, on Venezuelan TV, which is apparently a weekly show, and he never missed hosting an episode um, until a Copa America 2007 game. Pretty great, yeah. I mean, look, <laughs> there's definitely like a cult of personality around Chavez. I can understand why people wouldn't like him. I think you know. Um, yeah, it's uh, uh, that that was that that chapter I thought was super interesting because it's like, you know, essentially Venezuela was was the laughingstock of of Latin American soccer, right? And yeah. and there was this period where, man, they were really unstoppable, and it did feel, I think, to your point earlier, it felt like. Yeah, they were the other example I was going to use of maybe somewhere that had like a political resurgence and that led to weirdly coincided at least with success on the field. And yeah, like riding this wave of, coincides yeah. with a fall. Yeah, totally, totally, totally. And my my and question like, was going to be, is it coincidence or is there some link just in terms of like national feeling or national feeling of success that actually translates to success on the field? Colombia is another example, right? Yes, um, very much so, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I honestly, I don't know the answer. I'd love to hear, I'd love to hear what people think. I mean, maybe this is an area where we could ask for people to, who are, who are reading along with us to, to share their thoughts. I mean, that this is, I, I need to think more about this. It's not the kind of thing that I can just offer like a, 
I wish I, I wish I had thought about this question as I was reading. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's a really good one. Uh, let's ask people to, to write in. I'd be really curious to hear what people think about that. And since we're being vaguely political, it it is worth looking back and realizing <laughs> that <political>. after <laughs> after the November 2016 election is when the U.S. like you know hosted Mexico in Columbus and got beat in Columbus and then got destroyed by Costa Rica. It was like the beginning. It was the beginning of the 2018 World Cup qualification campaign, and it was an absolute disaster. And it was immediately immediately after um, a kind of shocking election that did that, that uh, was like a, a complete about turn in national politics, right? At least at the at the national level. Um, and I, I just find that fascinating that there seems to be some link between political toing and froing and the the form of a football team, the fortunes of a football team. I'm just enjoying watching you like edge farther and farther out on this limb that you're on that you've constructed here because uh <laughs> i'm sure that there are so many counterexamples, but but i'm yeah this yeah is but great. if i don't uh, list those my argument sounds really good right that's right it really does um, <laughs> hey this is daryl jumping in to let you know today's show is sponsored by roman r-o-m-a-n if you're dealing with erectile dysfunction it can be tough psychologically and it can be tough logistically just to go and see a doctor. Our friends at Roman have spent years building a digital platform that can connect you with a doctor licensed in your state or from the comfort of home. So you use your phone or your tablet or your computer to complete a free online visit on your schedule. So this overcomes the logistical barrier. It also should help you overcome the psychological barrier. You do the online visit for free on Roman's website and then you'll hear back from a US licensed physician within 24 hours. If that physician decides that treatment is right for you, Roman's Pharmacy can ship you the medication with free two-day shipping. You'll also get unlimited follow-ups with your doctor anytime you have questions or want to adjust your treatment plan. With Roman, there are no commitments and you can cancel any time so if you're struggling with erectile dysfunction go to getroman.com slash tss for a free online visit and free two-day shipping that's getroman.com slash tss for a free online visit and free two-day shipping what else daryl from this taylor struck you uh, to me there was there was one line that i wrote down i usually write down a lot of lines from david and i that i want to reference but this is this is one that i thought you know, really, really captured the the section that it was in. And it was this uh, Brazilian football has been holding, uh, has been a holding room for the mental and emotional pathologies of a still brutalized society. I, I wrote that, that was, down as well. I, did you really? Yeah. I've, I have a separate yeah. set of notes that is not the questions I sent you. It's just the stuff that I typed up. At, um, as private I notes. Okay. Private notes. Yeah. Not, yeah. not, it says at the top, not for sharing. Don't show. <laughs> <laughs> um, so sorry, I, I interrupted. Uh, what were you about to say about that line? Um, well, I think that this is his attempt to make sense of things that are kind of inexplicable. I mean, there was there there are some some episodes of of really extreme violence in in Brazilian football. He mentions one where you know these two friends, one's a yeah. referee and one's a one's a player. Uh, the the referee red cards um, sends off his friend who's playing, and the friend um, refuses to go, and so the referee stabs him. And, kills him and then the crowd that you know the play the other players and i guess the crowd then chase the referee and decapitate him and quarter him and it's yeah. just extremely violent and they to, to, I, I i typed out the list of what happened the mob stormed the field beat the referee with a wooden pole 
smashed a bottle in his face, ran him over with a motorcycle several times, decapitated him, and then quartered him. It's not a pretty way to go, no. is what I'll say. Um, you know, and then there's like there there's the, the the goalkeeper who ordered a contract killing of his pregnant girlfriend. Like there are just some real episodes of violence in in Brazilian football. And if if you if you watch Brazilian movies, I think you 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 get a sense that it pervades pervade society um and that line from david to me was um you know there's an undercurrent in this chapter of of what happens to people when they feel as though they don't have agency they don't have a future they don't have you know um like that 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 join you know in the u.s we have this 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 story about being able to move up and join the class above you. If you're working class, you can join the middle class. If you can, if you're middle class, you maybe you have a chance of joining the upper middle class, you know, um, that, that mobility I think is, is rings more and more hollow here. And in Latin America, it's just, you know, really doesn't exist. And so, um, we're seeing, we're seeing these like manifestations of like, yeah, like, like you said, of these pathologies that, that <laughs> like are, just are, are inexplicable. Like this is, there is no way to explain it other than, you know, these episodes, of, anyway, I, I, I've talked myself into a, a little bit of a cul-de-sac. It's a little well, bit like, I just want to shake my head and be like, wow. This the, is- question, <laughs> the question I had when I wrote down the line, and again, for people um, who didn't catch it, it was that Brazilian football is a holding room for the mental and emotional pathologies of a still brutalized society, right? Which is kind of what you just described. But I sort of wondered if maybe football's not really special in that way. Maybe this is just a thing that is happening across a brutalized society and football just happens to be like the most popular sport and like there's a lot of eyes on it like people like you and I don't look at all of Brazilian society we just look at football because that's the thing that we're into um and uh, you know what I mean like maybe it's coming out in all aspects of Brazilian society and we're just looking at this one part and so we think of it as some special uh holding room as David describes it like what what do you think it, like are we giving essentially football too much importance here i, I don't so, uh, yes and no, because you know you're right. Like it, it is, you know, it, it probably it probably shows up. My guess is I'm no expert. It probably shows up in other in other aspects of life as well. But like, but soccer is uniquely, I think, in, you know, uniquely able to channel the the energies and sort of um, you know inflections of a of a specific time and place uh, of a society and and sort of the way that it the way that it's moving and changing, right? And so you know. To use another Brazilian example, you know, David says that, um, you know, the success of, of a team of, of, you know, a mixed team with, with, you know, black and brown and white faces, um, you know, led to Brazil being able to tell itself a new story about like, you know, this, this more dynamic mixed yeah. society. And, and so that was the story then, and this is the story now. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's, it diminishes football's role to say that it's just, just a prism through which to view society. It, it seems to me like maybe the prism um, in, in certain cases. I guess it's, um, it's also true that like Brazil, football plays such a large role in Brazil that, it, that you, can't, you can't argue that it's the same as everything else, right? You can't argue that, uh, I don't know, opera is as important in Brazil as football is important in terms of the number of people, number of people that are interested in it and participate in it. Like football is the big thing. Yeah, I yeah, I probably. Um, you know, and so and so for instance, this is why you know the the uh you know, he mentions that 2014 team that that lost to to Germany so yeah. badly. And you know, the fact that there were so many um 
evangelical Christians on that team, mm-hmm. which is interesting, right? Because Brazil is is a largely Catholic country, but to see the to see the um, you know the emergence of these of these players who have a slightly different you know quite quite different faith. Um, what what is that? You know, it made me think like, huh? I wonder I wonder what the demer- demographic changes are across society if this is happening in in the national team, right? There's a really good episode of uh, Football Today. And if you've uh, heard that podcast that really gets into um, the, the sort of sudden, sudden prevalence of evangelical Brazilian footballers like, around the like famous players around the world, like Firmino um, and oh, man. No. In the national team. Yeah. Do you know about football today? No, no, I it's don't. a little bit like what we tried to do with the goal mouth, except what they've done is um, done a New York Times, the daily type thing where it's not every day. It's every couple of days. They'll call up an expert about a topic uh, that's that's newsy um, and, and really dig into it for like 20 minutes or so. Yeah, it's definitely like <laughs> that's great, yeah. they probably yeah. owe Michael Barbaro some royalties, but it, it's right. very, very good. I would I would highly recommend it. Yeah. Shout out to Rob Lepley on Twitter, who um, definitely the Goldmouth's biggest fan, I would say. And, Is that right? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like when I when I said I was leaving the athletic, he was, his response was, "I guess this means we won't get the, the gold mouth." I was like, <laughs> "I love it! You're so committed to the gold mouth. It's so great." Um, anyway, we, yeah, we, we will get the TSS book club though, right? This isn't gonna. This isn't. That's gonna right, start. baby. Yeah. I'm 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 coming back. I have um, another thing I was interested in in Brazil is I saw all the um, underinvestment in women's soccer, right? And you look at the big example is the. Uh, was it 2011 where Santos folds its women's team uh, just so it can pay Neymar um, a higher salary to keep him around for a bit longer, which seems like really emblematic of what was going on with the underinvestment in, in women's soccer in Brazil. And yet, this is the thing that David notes, is they still keep producing players like like Marta, right? They really do produce a, a really impressive level of talent, haven't quite managed to win a World Cup, but have been a threat almost every single time. And this is the thing that really got me is I've always um, been really wary of this idea that like football in Brazil is kind of this magical thing where like kids just play it in the streets and suddenly they're just so good they can become national team players. And it's like the soul of the people type thing. And I I almost find the, the argument for or the example of these really talented female players coming through, despite there being very little infrastructure for such a long time weirdly convincing of that idea that there's just something going on in brazil that just creates footballers like against the odds yeah it's that reach yeah it's 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 very much like the it's very much the opposite of what i think when we think about the american model right which is like academies and structure and you know um, we're gonna practice from from you know five to seven on tuesdays and thursdays right um you know uh, yeah, well, I mean, look, it's like, it's the, the Simon Cooper and, uh, Stefan Zemanski argument that, you know, you need this combination of like soccer being pervasive enough that everyone plays it, uh, uh, enough poverty to where people are willing to like forego like academic opportunities to pursue a soccer career and enough, um, enough wealth to sort of take the best of them and turn them into like really high functioning players. Right. And so, uh, Brazil has that, they argue that Turkey is going to be a, a really great, uh, soccer power in the future because of that. So but yeah, I agree. Like there's this informal, um, you know, setting that, that just sort of, uh, it seems to create enough, enough talent to, you know, to sort of pick up the slack from, or, or maybe even like 
um, improve upon like an academy model with, with investment and structure and, you know, uh, pristine soccer fields. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that's interesting. Um, and it sort of makes you wonder what would be happening with that team if they actually did have the kind of investment that like, you know, yeah. American women's soccer has, has had, um, it would be pretty unstoppable. It seems, um, cause they've got that, that sort of magic, uh, formula. And I take the hiring of PS Sundhaga as head coach to be a signal, at least, that the CBF is willing to invest more in the women's game, right? Unless Pia Sundhaga is just, like, you know, a figurehead or window dressing, I assume you don't... I assume it really does signify a, a commitment to uh, to women's soccer in Brazil, and it, it wouldn't surprise me if they, they take that next step and become genuine World Cup contenders um, every, every time the tournament rolls around. Dude, uh, yeah, who knows, right? Um, I think one thing this chapter shows us is that like things can change really quickly, like yeah. for better or worse. Um, it, you know, and and it sort of so just to transition. I hope I hope that's okay. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. To Uruguay, where yes, um, Oscar Tabarez w- w- sort of figured out that you know he's not you know, his best players are going to go to Europe, and how do how how does he as the national team coach? Um, create unity within the team, which, you know, obviously a, a country like Uruguay, which is so small and so successful needs um, in order to punch above its weight. And, and he figured out that, you know, he can, he can create these links in the youth teams that sort of survive into, into adulthood. And that to me was so interesting because um, it answers the question, like, why does this team seem to have like just more than, more than the sum of its parts? Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. What, what, what do you think of that? Yeah, because it's also the answer to the thing that I thought, this is what I thought this chapter was going to be about because it's the way that David frames it at the start is that um, so much of South American soccer is about extraction and exportation, right? The best players are just exported over to Europe in the same way that like the oil is exported um, elsewhere. And he, I think he opens with the point of like, um, I don't know if it's a specific team or just the average Brazilian team, like 40% of their revenue is selling players. And if they don't, you know, sell enough players, then their 40% of their revenue um, is missing. And I thought that was going to be like the key thing that was addressed throughout the chapter. So it somewhat surprised me that we did, that there wasn't more of that. Not complaining. I'm just saying that like that seems to be a major theme in South American soccer. Um, and yeah, it seems like Oscar Tabarez has at least come up with... Um, a solution to having uh yeah forging bonds with those players before they before they leave so that there's like a national team unity uh by the time they've even arrived in europe and started you know getting their place on a premier league team or whatever yeah he he, re- he relates it to uruguay as a whole where, where which he says and i don't have any examples of this but where he says you know that the country has figured out how to um you know, sort of accept the the realities of of the world economic system and sort of turn them to the, to its favor in yeah. some ways. And and I, I again, I, I I don't know enough to to comment on that. But I thought it was really interesting because so much of the the the, um, the hardship that a lot of the you know that, that we read about it comes from you know. And, and here's the thing: like <laughs> that structure and the, that system isn't. It's not a foregone conclusion that you have to become impoverished because you're on the the wrong side of it, right? Um, right. There are plenty of people becoming very, very, very wealthy in South America through soccer. It's just that, like, it's the question of like, how do you how do you share that wealth, and like, do you have the political will to to like enforce that? And and in so many cases, the answer is no. And a lot of this chapter dealt with attempts on a society wide level, not just specifically within soccer, to to change that. And like, we just see how tough that is, and like how much these like politicians who never fully succeed. Um, 
just are like battling against this. And so I, I think to myself, like I try to, I try to remember I'm reading it and I'm like, man, this is depressing. This is really bad. And then I'm like, well, you know what, actually, um, let's keep in mind like how things were in like the eighties and the nineties and like what led to this and like, just keep in mind that like, yes, it's going to be a struggle. And, and, and so reading about these setbacks is not, it's not in itself a bad thing because they're in power and having setbacks and that's a good thing. Like let's, let's watch that happen. Um, <laughs> like, man, I wish, I wish we could try that here. Even if we fa- like, <laughs> I wish, even if we fail, <laughs> I'd like to see, see someone try. Well, sometimes things go on narrow margins and like, uh, on interventions from, from big names. Uh, and I say that cause I really want to talk about what happened in Uruguay with the TV rights and the marketing rights to the national team and Diego Godin's intervention. Um, so to refresh your memory, George, in case you don't know about it, this is all about uh, Paco Casal, who was a super agent in the 80s and 90s, and he forms this media company called Tenfield, where he gets the rights to the Uruguayan League, according to David, despite being outbid by $32 million. His bid was $32 million <laughs> less than a rival bid, and yet he still wins the rights to the Uruguayan League. And it seems like he's essentially in bed with the, uh, the Uruguayan FA president, right, uh, uh, Figueroa. And this goes on for almost two decades. So that's two decades of underinvestment. And I know you were talking about, you know, national politics, but this seems like uh, a, a little microcosm, right, of what's going on at a national level, right? So this, this all ends when uh, in 2016, the national marketing rights, uh, Tenfield, Casal's company, bids three quarters of a million dollars. Nike makes a bid worth four times that. And they're going to go with Casal again and his undervalued offer for obvious reasons. But Diego Godin puts out, Uruguay captain and athletic, former Atletico Madrid player currently with Inter, I believe, um, just writes a letter on his personal website and the Nike bid um, is, is sort of accepted over the Tenfield bid by a vote of 10 to 9. And it just really struck me that Godin's letter seems to be enough to just swing at least one or two votes and make all the difference and essentially end two decades of corruption that's, that underfunded Uruguayan soccer. Yeah, and, and force the organization to do the thing that's actually in its best interest. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my big question. How, again, I know you don't really have the answers to this, and this is almost a rhetorical question. How is that possible? How is that allowed to happen? Why would anyone think that like allowing uh, Casal's bid of $32 million less than the other bid to be, to be good for Uruguayan soccer in any possible way? I mean, because that's not the goal. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just imagining, if I'm Figueroa, I'm the FA president, I understand there's probably something, there's probably a lot going in his pocket, right? And that's why... I mean, Daryl, yeah, Daryl, that. that's like saying like Rupert Murdoch started Fox News to like benefit American society. It's just not the case. Like that was never the goal. He just wanted us to, to have make... fair and balanced news, George. Yeah, right. It was to make a mint. And, and like the fact that it's hollowed out like our entire, like enabled like a whole side of the political class to like hollow out the country is like just sort of a you know it's a byproduct um it's well, i mean okay it, let's let's look at it not from the idea of like why would figueroa the fa right. president go with yeah. this undervalued bid because mm-hmm. you know we can guess why right um mm-hmm. but why wasn't there more like constant uproar like why would society a- accept this i don't know man i think it's has to, like we hear a lot these days about like you know the institutions and the structures and the the norms and like i actually you know i usually roll my eyes at that stuff but i actually think that there's something to it here um and like the fact that like you need people in those jobs who are going to actually like pay attention and like 
you know, blow the whistle and enforce the rules. Right. Um, if, if those, if those things aren't strong and if those rules aren't there in the first place, um, how do you enforce them? Like, I don't, I don't know. I, I think that like, <laughs> you know, and it goes back, like it goes back a long ways. Like, you know, a lot of these societies that used to be colonial, you know, the colonial societies like have structures in place that like really you see, you know, you see it in the, in the, in the, the racial makeup of like who's in charge and who's, who's, who's living in the, in the, in the poor neighborhoods. Right. Um, it's just, it's just, you know, decades and decades, like, sorry, I'm, I'm getting preachy and I don't mean to like, it's just, this is why, this is why you can't separate soccer from like the society in which it's being played. It's just, it's just impossible. And, and like we see it and it's not just, it's not just a South American problem. Like this is a problem everywhere. We see it here, um, to varying degrees. So, you know, yeah, I mean, look, that's, that's, uh, that's my answer. And, and it's just such a, it's such a quagmire that, you know, I, I almost don't know where to begin. Like this is, this is why I'm glad we have someone like David, because I can't answer that in like a 20 second sound clip, you know? <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I like asking you not tough questions, but almost idealistic questions. If that makes sense. Um, well, is there anything else that did make you just feel? So you, just so you can, just so you can watch me become really frustrated and <laughs> start stammering. And <laughs> no, I'm I'm sort of hoping that maybe because often you have answers to things that I that I don't know about. You know what I mean? So I'm, I'm almost like asking in the hope that maybe there's some optimistic answer that I can take from you. What I would say is that there is so much more in this chapter than we got to, and yes. it's really interesting. And and you know, something that you said to me before we started recording was that like it can sort of you know, the news from South America, if you're, if you're not really attuned to it can sort of start to bleed together. But, um, I think this chapter for me was really helpful because it sort of reminded me like each of these countries has its own flavor and each, each is going through its own thing. They're, they're, they're related in ways, but, um, it's the differences are really fascinating. And like, so talking about like Chile and coming out of like the Pinochet years and is, is, is different than what, what Ecuador is going through and like the racial component there where they've finally decided that, Oh yeah, like black people can play soccer and like our national team does really well when we <laughs> include them um, to, to, you know, Colombia coming out of like this, this like really, really destructive drug war. Um, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just really like, man, I am so glad we read this. And you were saying that you were saying before, that um you thought like we're we're sort of still playing this like um depressed depression olympics with with these different regions like you were saying that that you, i think you said that you found the the middle east chapter much more depressing than the africa chapter and i sort of wonder where you put this in the hierarchy of like <laughs> like if, if we have a, a silver a gold and a and a and a bronze medal in the depression olympics so far where where did, what, what does this one get oh it's tough right because included in this is uh teams that because they were just because there's brazil and argentina and uruguay and chile like really really and colombia you can maybe add to that like really really high high level really good successful soccer teams um it it changes my mind about it a little bit if that makes sense like like there's not a story of an an african team going really deep at the world cup or um an, an asian confederation team or a middle eastern team going really deep at the world cup so I don't know is is the answer. But are you asking more about in a society wide kind of way? I, ju- I guess I just mean like if you look at these different regions, uh, and they're they're all sort of like related in different ways to European soccer, which has sort of been the big the big dominant region that we haven't really addressed yet. Right, that's yeah. the next chapter. It's a behemoth of a chapter too. Um, you know which which of these seems like the you know like did this one seem hopeless to you um the way that i think you felt when you were reading the the middle east chapter or did you find some 
you know, some things okay. to like. So yeah, the Middle East. Yeah, because there's some tension. In, there's some tension in this chapter. There's like, yeah, the, you know, there there are like different factions, and sometimes, you know, the good guys win, and sometimes they lose. And I kind of wonder, you know, who who you think is like winning the overall the overall war here. So yeah, here's what I'm thinking now. Now that I'm remembering the the Middle Eastern chapter, it really felt like the 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 uh, regimes are really really powerful, and it seems really really hard to make progress. In South America, it feels like it feels like there's going to be swings back and forth, right? And there's going to be progress, and then there's going to be things go things go backwards, and there's going to be um, there's going to be violence, and then there's going to be reforms, and it's like it's yeah, like you said, there's a tension where it goes back and forth. I well, and in I'm, the Middle East chapter, the, the the street those were the good guys, right? Because yeah. they were they were rebelling in in a lot of cases against like you know um, the religious rule or or dictatorships. But in this case, the street is kind of associated with the 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 Baras, right? Who are like basically drug gangs, and so yeah. they're not like the good guys necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's more like the progressive politicians are the good guys, and. Uh, and the reformers at the federations are the good guys in this chapter, right? And they're they're making progress, but then they're getting knocked backwards, right? Like there's 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 Lula and there's Dilma, and then there's uh, and then there's Bolsonaro, for example, in Brazil. Yeah, um, and I guess I was wrong because the street is also putting those people in power. So like, yeah. the, 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 there are people who like have diagnosed these problems and said like, you know what, I'm not going to fall victim to like the Bolsonaros and like you know just believe that. <laughs> You know, these are like the guys in sunglasses are right, right? <laughs> well, I would say to, to properly answer your question, I've had time to think about it and sort of talk my way through it. I weirdly find the Africa chapter most optimistic, but I think it's just because the way it's written is David includes a lot of um, really nice little um, uh, profiles or stories about really optimistic things like the like the prison league or like the um, amateur leagues that have become more po- almost more popular than the uh, the hollowed out professional leagues like you see these like like uh, green like grassroots of optimism in in the African chapter yeah yeah you said that before too and I, I think that so for you I think Africa still gets the gold medal in yes. hopefulness uh- <laughs> yeah and I just want to make clear that that's not me like making a judgment on the three continents or confederations it's really just about I think the way the chapters are presented and the stories that are put in front of us noted yeah. noted <laughs> for the record is there anything else yeah. you want to add George before we uh, before we wrap up no this this is good I mean there's a lot more to talk about I just like, you know I just I, I found a lot of inspirational figures in this in this uh, chapter um, Pepe Mujica is is another one we didn't talk about like if you go and read about Pepe Mujica the, the former president of Uruguay the guy like the guy's amazing um, <laughs> he's like just a regular guy um, you know he, and he was imprisoned by the, the dictatorship there and like just just go read about Pepe Mujica um, is my la- the last thing I will say. All right. Noted as well. I will go do that. Um, all right, George, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today about South American soccer. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate it. And uh, we'll, we'll have you back again to talk about the, uh, the behemoth European chapter. Thank you to everybody who's listening. Thank you to everybody who's reading along. It's not too late to join us. Links to buy the book will be in the show notes. And... Unlike um, certain people at certain federations, we're not getting any kickbacks from the book, right? We're just offering it so that for your convenience to buy it, there's nothing going in our pockets. All right. Thank you for listening. And we'll be back again tomorrow with more Total Soccer Show.